Welcome back to part two of the Lenise Bent NAM Oral History interview. If you missed part one, go back and check it out. It was released two weeks ago, and we're excited to have you. Well, speaking of that, of course, um, there were some challenges in the studio during that time, one of which was uh, trying to get these newfangled synthesizers to record in a way where they wouldn't drift and they wouldn't uh, bleed into other instruments. And uh, here's Lenise talking a little bit about that. Well, so there was a couple of things I wanted to ask you about that. One, was it difficult to, um, this is sort of the early days of synthesizers being recorded in a lot of respects. Were, Were there difficulties with that? Not really. Donald had a few he really liked, and he had this ARP Odyssey, this funny little ARP Odyssey. And so a lot of the noises he made on um, Home at Last, that solo in there, I remember him doing that in the control room. I, I wouldn't say I had a crush on him. Uh, I was just, I couldn't wait to get into work and just experience his genius. I know that sounds so corny, but it's true. He would, just how he was, I was absolutely mesmerized by him. And, you know, there's all these other people in the studio and all of that. Um, I knew you don't date anybody you work with. Well, I knew for me, I could not do that. because I had to be, it was important for me to be taken seriously as an engineer. I just happened to be a girl. But yeah, but Donald was really somebody that I was, I was absolutely fascinated with him. He just, when he would play, and he hated, hated um, doing singing. He couldn't stand his voice, but he knew nobody else could sing the songs except him. And uh, he would go out there and he would jam his hands into his pockets until his knuckles bled. And it was it was so hard for him to sing. And he'd come back in the studio, you know, he had this hair, he'd cut his own hair, he'd get anxious in the middle of the night and you could tell he had a rough night because it's all chopped up on top, but he had, you know, come in and... Um, he said, I can't do this, I can't do this. Get somebody else, get Barry Manilow, get, get Barbara Streisand, get anybody, I just can't do this, I can't do this. <laughs> and uh, um, so uh, Gary Katz, the producer, knew to, that he just needed to relax. You, then he was really interesting to watch and would do a great job. However, uh, being the perfectionist that he was, um, I think one of the Steely Dan stories wins the prize for um, taking the longest to do two words. There's a song called Home at Last. And back then you couldn't cut and paste. Everything had to be in real time live and you did it once and then you did it again and then you, you know you had to sing it all three or four times that it came in the song well there's two words in that song I don't know if you 
are familiar with that song, but it goes, Well, the danger on the rocks is surely past. Still I remain tied to the mast. The two words, well, the, well, the, well, the, just get the phrasing just right. So Monday, we do the melody. Well, the, well, the, well, the. Takes us the whole night to get the phrasing just right, the timing, the, everything. And Gary Katzigo, he had two things he did. He, that meant one more. Gary's from Brooklyn, so he go one more, one more. That got to where he didn't even have to push the button. One more, or listen, one more, listen. So the first night we did the melody. Well, the, well, the. Tuesday, we doubled it. Well, the, well, the, well, the. Wednesday, we did the harmony. Well, the. Well done. And then Thursday, we doubled that. We did take Friday off. But I had nightmares. <laughs> I did. I mean, that, you talk about having an, an earworm. You know, the song gets, gets stuck in your head. Man, well done. Well in fact, that got to be such a good story that Dick LaPalm would call me from wherever he was in the country or whatever. Knees, because they called me knees, the knees, you know, the bee's knees. I was so, um, so I go, knees, tell him the story. <laughs> It'd be a complete stranger. <laughs> you got to tell him the story. And that's the story. <laughs> well, the, yeah. So that was on that record. That's crazy. So they're perfectionists. They, and what Donald would always say, and this is what I tell everybody else, especially in this day and age where everything's quantized and, you know, everybody's lining everything up and all of that. It's, a, it's not about being perfect. It's about being right. When it's right and you feel like it's right and it, you get those goosebumps or you just know emotionally that it's right, that... That trumps perfect any time, any time. Yeah, uh, you have to have an emotional response in your music where nobody's going to want to listen to it. So if it's perfect, you know, I see my students starting to, they're going to fix the drums. Well, maybe the drummer meant to lay back a little bit there. Maybe the drummer, have you listened to it? Do you know for sure? that it needs to be fixed. Maybe it's just right. You gotta listen. Yeah, with the technology recently, there's been this sort of push to be perfect and sort of miss that point altogether. Well, and also now a lot of people expect that, but that's a certain style of music too. Um, pop music has to be spot on, I think. A lot of, you know, the really produced songs. Uh, but I think the Americana music can be a little more human. Um, 
I don't auto-tune or melodyne, but I don't work with people who really need it either. Mm. You know, if somebody says they're a singer, then they can re-sing that line <laughs> till they get it right. And it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be right. And they may swing that note, you know, and it'll be like, whoa, wow. Yeah, that's it. That's the one. It's said, oh, but it's a little fun. No, 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 no. That one, that's the one. That's the line. We're running with that. I'm, I'm doing more producing now. I also engineer. I get the best of both worlds. Um, I'm doing an all analog record right now. That's what I heard. That sounds really cool. Yes. Legacy quality. Um, recording to two inch, mixing to half inch, pressing vinyl. Yeah, so I'm really lucky, and it's a band called the Barrel House Kings, and they're the perfect band to make an analog record. They're so good, and all original music, really good rocking, great drums, great guitar, great vocalist, great bass player, slide guitar, harp, all sorts of stuff. Really, really good. So I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with that. But it's about it being right. Mm. There's a little bit of perfect in there too, though, I have to say. <laughs> Quite a bit of perfect. That's just who they are. <laughs> but I'm a little biased. Cool. Of course, that's why I'm working with them. <laughs> yeah, I no loved doubt. them, yeah. I think it's also important to note that um, Lenise went out of her way to ensure our oral history interview take place at the Village Studios in LA. She, of course, has her own studio and is working in Hollywood these days, but um, made special arrangements. And thanks to our friend Jeff Greenberg over there, we were able to secure the same studio that she recorded Asia in, um, which I thought was really fitting. It, again, goes back to the endearing qualities of this person who really embraces her history and the history of the environment around her. Um, and as a result, I now have a special place in my heart for the Village Studios. Lenise also worked on an album by the group Supertramp uh, called Breakfast in America, which was recorded at the Village Studios back in 1978 and has a lot of hit songs, some of which we're going to talk a little bit later. We'll hear Lenise talk about. Um, but to give you some stats on that album, Breakfast in America won two Grammy Awards uh, in 1980 and went quadruple platinum. It was the group's sixth studio album, which uh, is pretty, I guess that means they have some success, longevity. I mean, uh, <laughs> and it became their best-selling album of all time. About six million copies were sold in just the United States, not including all their success abroad, which is pretty impressive as well. So we're going to hear Lenise talk about working on that album with Supertramp. So I got to work on a lot of great records here. Um, another big one that I got to work on that has a kind of an interesting story is uh, working on Breakfast in America with Supertramp. And the, actually, what happened before I went to recording school and before Roger Lynn said come over, I was listening to lots of music back then, 10CC, Genesis, Supertramp, Crime of the Century. I heard that record and I said out loud, I want to make records that sound like this. 
I really said that hmm. while I was still in film school. And so they were a huge influence on me in that the quality of their music and their production and all of that. I mean, what a great record, Crime of the Century. So when I found out that they were gonna be in, coming to the village, I marched myself upstairs. <laughs> Here I go again. I need to do this record. I really need to do this record. You need to put me on this record. I'm, I'm, they're the ones, they're the reason I want to become a sound engineer. You really want me to be on this record. I know all of their records and all of this. And I said, well, sorry news, uh, they want a guy as an assistant. I went, uh, uh, well, I can't do anything about that. I can't change that, um, but if something changes, I'm really the one who needs to be doing this record. And I'm like, that was like, that was just like such a slap in the face because it had nothing to do with my ability and nothing to do with the fact that I understood their music and their band and, and what it entailed. It had nothing to do with any of that. It was just because I was a girl. And just to be told just like that, boom. Sorry, they want a guy. It's like, whoa. And I just, I really fumed about that. Or I just like, that's not fair, that's not fair, that's not right. They, you know, this can't be. And I, and I said, this just can't be. And I got closer and closer to when they were going to be coming in. And I'm getting more depressed and unhappy about the whole thing. And I just couldn't shake it. And uh, even, so it's like, they were going to start on this Sunday. So that Friday night before, I'm just, you know, I've been holding out, just maybe something will happen. Maybe, you know, they'll come to their senses or the studio say, you really want to have this person on the session or whatever. It's that Friday night, nothing's changed. Sky assistant's going to be on the record, so I'm really bummed. And my roommate at the time had, to make matters worse, had quit working. She used to work here. That's where I met her. She went to work for their management company. Mismanagement was the name of it. So she's working with them. I'm not. And I'm walk in my house and she's sitting there with the manager of Super Tramp and their, and their merchandising guy, you know, partying in the living room. And I just go in my room and pass out, you know, it's eight o'clock, I've already done for the night. And the phone rings at 10.30, wakes me up out of my drunken stupor. And it's the studio manager saying, be in the studio on Sunday at noon. You'll be working on with Super Tramp. And I went, what happened? He said, well, it's going to be a really long record. And, this, you know, the other assistant, he doesn't want to do it. So he quit. So you're the only ones we can get. It made me feel real special. Yeah. Warm fuzzy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> feel the love. Feel the love. Yeah. <laughs> So I go, yes, yay, I'm all excited. 
And so I go out, you know, to the living room, go, go get some orange juice because I'm totally dehydrated. Now I'm completely sober. You know, I'm all excited. But I walk by and say, hi. You know, I'm like the canary or the cat is eating the canary and get my orange juice. Bye. And go back into my room and, you know, go back to sleep. But I was so excited. So I show up on that Sunday at right at noon. And their engineer, Russell Pope, he's sitting there. And uh, he's the one who's getting everything together. He's not the one who actually engineered it, but he was like the sixth member of the band or whatever and kind of overseeing everything. And he's sitting at the console, and he turns his head like this, and he sees me and goes, may I help you? And I said, well, actually, the question is, may I help you? I'm Lenny Smith, and I'll be your assistant for this project. And he, you could have pushed him over with a feather. I mean, the look on his face. <laughs> I said, well, so where, you know, where can I get started? What can I help you with? And fortunately, it got a lot better from there pretty quickly. But boy, he just, yeah, like, this project is doomed. I could just see it on his face. Well, fortunately, that didn't happen. And uh, I worked on that for seven and a half months. And uh, did it help that you were able to do what he needed to do? And he, you, knew I made all the difference in the yeah. world because that's what he was worried about. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, yeah. I don't know what they thought. I don't know what they thought, but I don't think they ever. There were any other women in their whole entourage. <laughs> <Ta -da. laughs> Hi. <laughs> Turned out it worked out really well, and um, great record, and it was a lot of fun, and uh, got to sing background vocals on one song on the record, and a lot of yelling and hand claps and things, and the producer Pete Henderson, he was only twenty three. He was um, Jeff Emmerich's protege, and so George Martin used to come by all the time just to check up on on uh, Pete. Whenever he was in town, he'd drop by. Lots of great people would drop by, but I got to, you know, actually know George Martin a little bit. So uh, years later, I'm working for Mike Chapman with a band called The Knack, and they want to go to London to do strings on a few songs, so we're going to use the London Philharmonic and work at Air Studios. And uh, so I went, okay, cool. And it's right before Christmas. And, um, and Mike Chapman hired me. He wanted to be able to work with the people that I had relationships with. And so he brought me on and he was gonna make me the first woman producer and all of that. And so I, that was cool. And, but it was still really rough. And, and uh, so we go there and, and so they're kind of like pushing me aside a little bit and not really paying that much attention to me. I was just kind of pushing buttons or whatever. And, and um, then it's the last day and uh, they hear, oh, George Martin's here, and he's going to you know, pop into the studio and say hi. So they all go, oh, great. And they're all getting all gussied up, and you know, they're all full of themselves and getting all 
like that. And I went, oh, okay. So, you know, I'm working at the console. And so here George Martin walks in and they're all excited because they, you know, they fancy themselves as the new Beatles, kind of. And that's what their hype was. They're really nice guys. I mean, I'm, don't get me wrong, but right then they were just really full of themselves and, and, um, because everybody pumped them up and, you know, my Sharona, that record did really well, that whole album, Get the Knack. And uh, so it's their second record, so they're riding that crest. But uh, George Martin walks in, you know, this is here. Uh, George Martin's coming in. So they open the door and he walks in and they're all getting ready. And he goes, Lanise, what are you doing here with this lot? <laughs> And they just, boy, if they didn't hate me already, they really <laughs> hated me then. And I said, well, girls got to make a living. <laughs> I said, I'd like to introduce you to Mike Chapman and the members of the band. <laughs> boy, they were just, they didn't like that at all. But that's how, God bless him for doing that. That's just awesome. like, yeah, that was great. Oh man, that was so nice. That. <laughs> Sorry. I wonder if he sensed that 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 would be a impactful. I don't comment. know. Well, then it gets better. It gets better because, um, you know, in, in England and Britain, uh, they, everything closes for the holidays for two weeks. You know, all businesses. Every it's so civilized. So everybody has these enormous Christmas parties. So it's like December twenty second. And so, you know, we chatted for a bit and, you know, asked, he asked how they were doing or if they're happy with the service they're getting and, you know, all that stuff. And then he says, Lenise, tonight is our um, Air Studios Christmas party and I would love it if you would be my date. And I said, George, I'd be delighted. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so because he was like he was he was George Martin, but he was like an eighteen-year-old kid. He just was so full of life and so much fun, mm. and uh, we, just, we had a blast. Great music, lots of fun, and uh, but that I was just so grateful to him for doing that. That is so cool. Yeah, that is awesome. <laughs> what are you doing in here with this lot? <laughs> I know. And to have him ask you on a date right in front of him all that. Yes. Great. <laughs> to be his his <laughs> guest yes, that's awesome. at the air. Yeah. <laughs> so if, even if I had plans, yeah, I probably had plans. I probably it didn't matter. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> Sorry, whoever you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of like that, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. So one of the things I find most captivating about Lenise's story about working with the Knack and traveling over uh, across the Atlantic to do so is the big push they had for her not to be a part of it because she was a woman. She was a female. And that's just, you know, you kind of need to stop and acknowledge her for being one of the pioneering women to really open up that door to other women. And uh, by all means, she was not the first woman in the recording um, 
engineering world, nor even the first one to work at the Village Studios, as she mentions a little bit earlier in our podcast. But, um, you know, she does need some credit because she was so extremely successful and she really broke down a lot of barriers for women in the industry. And even by the end of that session, having uh, George Martin come in and give her her due credit he respected her and it kind of showed those guys that they needed to at least give her a shot to prove them wrong and prove them wrong she did and a point that she doesn't necessarily bring up too often uh, because she's humble is the fact that she has been a mentor uh, and an inspiration to so many other young women excuse me in the recording engineering world uh, several of which uh have commented to us uh, how important it is to capture her story because she is such a pioneer and an inspiration to people. And I, one of the other facts I love about that's the story that she uh, told about working with the Knacks is just that, you know, she wasn't going to push them. If they didn't want her in the studio because she was a woman and or anyone else throughout her career because, you know, they she can't handle the kind of talk that's going to go on or it's not appropriate or whatever the reason may be, she wasn't going to push anyone. You know, she wanted the opportunities uh that she wanted and she was going to fight for him, but she wasn't going to burn any bridges. She wasn't going to, you know, really push the boundaries and she was going to let her work speak for itself. And I think that's really admirable too, uh, to not, you know, to just lay it all out there for your work. So coming up, we're going to have her talk a little bit about working with super tramp, which to me was very magical. (laughs) That's a good word to describe it. And wonderful. Joyfully logical yeah there we go ah, there we that's go. it full <laughs> circle <laughs> yeah working with super tramp was wonderful they were they were a great bunch because they would um the british people had like to have fun and they would do so, so we'd have we'd be working all they block booked the studio b and it was in the old configuration and they brought in you know rugs and plants and pictures and lamps and just made it their own and um, they had a huge entourage of people but they were a big family sort of group so the wives and kids would come for dinner breaks and they because they all lived in Topanga and um, they come in and we go to Indian restaurants or go to wherever but sometimes they'd say you know as the time went on they'd say all right we have one hour between now and the end of dinner and come back and you have to be dressed in costume, or, you know, with just the materials, whatever you can find right here. And so they'd all get into it. And it was like, Americans don't have that kind of fun. And, um, and then they, they, and then they, one of the times, and so they come and somebody had taken two inch tape and wrapped themselves all up a certain way. And they, I mean, they blankets out of the car, packing, whatever. They they were so creative. They always had fun things to do. And then another one was um, they uh, said, okay, when you come back from dinner, everybody has to have a sweeper. You know what a sweeper is? You know those comb-overs, those haircuts, <laughs> those hair like that? So they all the band members did that. They came back, and even Russell Pope, who had hair down to here, <laughs> he figured out how to do a sweeper, and it was, it was hilarious. And they actually did a photo shoot. They, did, they loved what they looked like so much that they did a real-life photo shoot, which I have some great pictures of them with sweepers. You know, it, it's very funny. 
That's so, awesome. So what a lot song of fun. are you singing on? Oh, I'm singing on, uh, it's called uh, Oh Darlin'. I think it's the last song on Side B. But then there's uh, Nervous Rack, we're all yelling, Go! Give a damn! Fight! While you can! Kill! You know, and um, Goodbye Stranger out there doing finger pops and um, yeah. That's cool. It is cool. It is cool. They were they were a lot of fun. I was and oh boy. Uh, so we did basic tracks. You know, we did drums. It took us twelve days to get a, a drum sound. No kidding! Wow. Bob Siebenberg's enormous drum sound. Oh man. Uh, uh, yeah, it took t just to get the kick drum right. You'd, you know, put the head on, put a hole in it, do a bigger hole, put this padding. Now we've destroyed that head. I have to go get another head. You know. But anyway, after 12 days, finally got the signature drum sound, which you know it was worth it. Um, everybody else is still getting set up and whatever. Um, but uh, so we're cutting the basic tracks for the songs. Basic tracks, of course, meaning you know drums, bass. If there's a rhythm keyboard, work vocal. They have a sax player. Um, you know guitars. Whatever. So we had that all set up and uh, doing the songs, but then it's time to do logical song. And they get in there, and you know, I hadn't really heard the song, and uh, they did two takes of that song. And that was it. I mean, after that second take, everybody just was quiet, going, Whoa, and everybody, it was like reality hit knowing this is a hit. This is a huge hit. This isn't just a hit, this is a huge hit. And we all just kind of went, and that was after two takes. And the sax player was crammed into the little bathroom to isolate him. You know, his, his sax was in the, the you know, trash can. You know? <laughs> he sat on the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so we couldn't even see him, but he, you know, about these proper British accents, he's going, my, my saxophone is in the dustbin, you know, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, he'd flush the toilet and stuff, <laughs> and, uh, but after that, just two takes, that's all it took. Hmm. Very few overdubs on that. I mean, you know, some harmonies and some things, and at the end, there's a little Game Boy. You know, I'm feeling so digital, bring, bring. We put that on there. Digital, yeah, that was it. Um, but uh, one of the things that you never do as an assistant engineer is play anything for anybody that you've worked on. And you can't really, you certainly can't talk about it outside of the studio. And that's one thing I impress upon my students. They need to understand that this is a high, security situation. This is where artists feel safe in the studio. They need to know they're safe here, that their music is safe. So it's really, really important to be completely private. Um, when I go into a studio and I see assistants, I say, hey, are you working on anything fun? And they go, yeah, 
you know, but I never would ever ask who you're working with. And assistants need to know, or anybody, runners, anybody has to be really mindful of that. Because this is very private. There are some fans out there, too, who aren't just fans. They're a little quirky. And I remember when it was Steely Dan, there was this guy. Somehow, he found out they were working here, called the front desk, and they put him through to that room. And he was, hey, Don. He called Donald Don like his old buddy, old pal. And Donald, I just saw the terror on his face knowing this guy had found him. Or just like, you know, how did, how did this guy get in? How did this phone call get through here? Because somebody at the front desk didn't know any better. And so, yeah, they, now they know where he was. That almost would have been enough to have them change studios. So you really don't want that to happen. But uh, yeah, that was scary because this guy was a stalker. Hey, I booked, uh, I booked a Dodger Stadium for you guys to play in. He was saying stuff like that, you know, and he was just a wacko. But, you know, so you have to be very, very mindful and not say anything. So back to the logical song. It was so, it sounded so good that I went to Gary Starr, the studio manager, at the end of the session, and I said, um, I know we're not supposed to do this, but I think you really want to hear something. If, if it's okay with you, I'd really like to play the song they did today um, with your permission. And he said, yeah, and he brought in the other assistant engineers and we came in and I played that back and we all just knew, boy, because it was almost perfect, just like that. So that was a big deal. Yeah, I would bet. Yeah, when you, when you know that, that clearly and, and you have no idea what the impact of that's really going to be in your life, everybody's life. Mm. So biggest record of 1980. They were the biggest band of 1980. <laughs> and it won a Grammy for Best Engineering, as well as Asia did, too. Yep. Very cool. I should have gotten an Assistant Engineering Grammy. <laughs> yes, you should have. One of the most endearing qualities of Lenise to me and her character is her respect of other uh, people in the profession. Um, she has played an uh, important role in the uh, gathering of information, photographs and the like uh, for the annual NAM tribute that's uh, done every year during our trade show in Anaheim. And Lenise is always there, uh, front and center, uh, paying her respects to those who have passed away. And, um, and so we're going to hear her talk a little bit about Roger Nichols, who she uh, worked with. Um, he was born in 1944 and passed away in 2011. Um, worked with Steely Dan, uh, which is where she uh, had her opportunity to work with him. Um, 
He went on, of course, to do a bunch of uh, albums with uh, John Denver, uh, Stevie Wonder. Um, but importantly, um, in sort of the, the nerd level of engineering and history, um, Roger also, in 1978, uh, came up with the uh, digital drum replacement concept um, and utilizing the inventions of Wendell sampling computer uh, introduced a whole level of uh, engineering drum sounds and drum beats that uh, have been emulated ever since. Uh, as a result of that, uh, he uh, gained the nickname the Immortal uh, and you'll hear her refer to him that way. So uh, here's uh, Lenise Bent talking about Roger Nichols. But I did get to go to the Grammys. Roger Nichols, he could have taken anybody. And he, you know, he drove a Pantera and he was this hot single guy and he could have taken any Malibu babe he wanted. And he took me to the Grammys. Very nice. Very. Yeah. That was really nice of him to do that. I learned so much about him when he was given the uh, Lifetime Achievement Award and his family was there. Were you there at that mm -hmm. event? I was yep. there too. That was unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, very special. Yep. He, he taught me things that I try to pass on to my students. He, he had such a clean signal flow and tried to bypass a, a, as much electronics as possible. He taught me, I mean, he, on vocals we would use a limiter, but basically it was mic, the right mic in the right place, in the right room, in front of the right person or instrument. Mm. So get, you get your sound in the room. Also, he wouldn't let uh, mic cables touch, so there wouldn't be any cross-talk. All this, you know, micro stuff that people say, eh, nobody's gonna hear. Well, I don't know, Steely Dan records are pretty revered for some reason. And he was, a, as you know, a nuclear physicist before That's right. he was, uh, he was working at San Onofre. And he started making records um, so that they wouldn't sound bad. He heard so many poorly recorded records with clicks and pops and gack on them. But he wanted, that was his motivation. I don't hear any more of this. <laughs> I know. That's the kind of guy he was. He, he, he had the unbelievable, wonderful ability to communicate very difficult concepts so easily. You know, some people just can't. You say, well, you just, you've got this thing right here, and it goes blah, 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 and does this, and then you... What you really wanted to do is this other thing. So when you add this to it, it makes it stop doing that thing. And it, you know, he, you know, uh, in, in my career, I have come across many people who are very important. And they let you know how important they are by uh, when you ask them some, a question because you need to know how to work something or whatever, they let you know how smart they are, but they don't really communicate to you. And more than once I've said, I already know that you're really smart, um, but you're not telling me what I need to know so I can work this. Please just communicate with me on this. You know, especially because usually I don't have a lot of time yeah. <laughs> when it's like that. How's this work? <laughs> That's all I need to know. I don't need to know how it was built. And you don't have to use four words for one. And 
But some people, you know, they're like that. He was never like that. I like. I remember you. You summed up one of his techniques by the the fact that he just didn't like. Why have a long cable? Yeah. Why use the longest one? I yeah. I thought that was a, a good way of saying sort of that was his way of thinking, right? If yeah. Just direct, easy is better, you know that sort of thing. Yeah. And it, oh, and it sounds better too. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I miss him. Miss him a lot. We all do. Yeah. That's right. Well, we could be here forever. I know. But how okay, long did they give it's, us? We've been here cool? two hours. They said they'd let us know, so oh, okay. as long as I know, we can Well, that's going. cool. Well, I think we're going to let you off the hook. Can we do a part two? Sure. Awesome. I would like that. I'd like that, too. <laughs> Maybe we can go someplace else, but I like it here. Yeah, no doubt. We didn't even get into the Fleetwood Mac stuff. I know. Studio to... D stuff. I slept on that couch a lot. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not that one. It wasn't that one. It was a different one. <laughs> yeah, we or there was in Mick's office was over, you know, there. And so the couch there opened up to a bed, and many nights it would be like Ken Kelly, their producer, me, and one other person would be like five in the morning, and you know, we were just, we had to sleep before we left, so it'd be three of us, fold out bed, we're all lying there. <laughs> you find out who stores quickly, I guess. Yeah, yeah. you know, by that point, you don't even care. Don't even care. But, uh, yeah. Cool. Now, was Al Schmidt here when you were here, or when did he come later? Al Schmidt, uh, he worked in New York on, um, the, he helped mix Asia. We didn't mix it here, uh, except for one song, we mixed Peg. Oh, okay. Yeah, here. And there's more stories about Peg, too. <laughs> um, well, for the first seven months, is this still rolling? Yeah. Oh, okay. For the first seven months, um, there was a Lyricon solo on that song, Peg. That Lyricon being the synthesized, like, kind of clarinet or soprano. Kind of, it was a Lyricon. It sounds like a Lyricon. Um, Tom Scott had done it and had played it. And it was on, that was the solo that was going to be on it for, um, you know, that's it. Until Warner Brothers or somebody decides, no, nah, we don't want that on there. We want a guitar solo. Somebody decided they need a guitar solo. I don't know if it was the band or, or but there was no band. Donald or Walter or who it was, but uh, suddenly they have to have a guitar solo on it. Oh, and also, they're a little over budget. And uh, they're going to take the tapes away. One day we were waiting for, <laughs> see, I, I just kind of, this one thing leads to another thing, leads to another thing. Um, we were waiting for Walter to show up one day. We had a daytime session, and Walter was supposed to be there at about noon, and he wasn't around. And so Donald and Gary Katz and Roger Nichols and I walked over, went over to Uni High, I guess we drove in a car, you know, University High School's over here, to shoot baskets. 
because there's nothing else to do. And to watch Donald back then shoot baskets, he was kind of pigeon-toed, kind of hunched over, kind of like this. And for him to run, and it was pretty funny. None, none of us were sports. I mean, I think Gary Katz was into sports, but <laughs> it was probably the oddest collection of potential basket attempters of anybody. So we're out there. And so finally we, so, because they had to burn off, you know, frustration or whatever. Walter was going through some crazy times then, and it was not pretty. And uh, so anyway, we shot baskets for a while and ran around and played in the schoolyard. And so we come back, and I remember Donald's walking down the hallway to Studio A right here, and he's bouncing the ball. And we opened the door, and there's Walter sitting in there with all these suits from Warner Brothers. And he's sitting on the chair, and he goes, well, I'm so glad you guys showed up. You know, to us, Donald turns around, throws the basketball at me. I grab it. I leave. Door slams. Two hours later, suits leave. I don't know if I can tell this story. I can tell it up to a certain point. Uh, they wanted to... Take the tapes that day. Have somebody mix them. And that was going to be it. Well, that was, you know, that was never going to happen. But then they wanted a guitar solo, too. So, um, so they start bringing in people. We went through Larry Carlton, uh, Elliot Randall, Robin Ford, um, so many people. And their solos weren't right. And we're up against the gun. And they just get rid of it, get rid of it. It's tape. They just erase it. And the last person that got in was Jay Graydon. And, um, and that was the last. Whatever he did was going to go on the record. So, of course, they weren't going to like it. And... Uh, and they didn't, and they certainly didn't like him. Hey, B flat, they call me the rake. You know, it actually said the rake on the back of his car, his driver's license, everything that was against. And they were just like, <laughs> they were so not amused. And they were not, they did not like this solo at all. And every, you know, that's, that's such a famous solo now. And it put him on the map and everything. They hated it. And they'd erased all these <laughs> I mean, they were all good. It's a good, it's, it's certainly different from any of the other ones. I think it's great, but they weren't, you know, because that was going to be it. Of course they didn't like it. They weren't going to like it. And that's when it went on the record. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's a Fred story. Now I gotta go hear it. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. I know it. It's really a great solo. Yeah, that's awesome. I think, I hope it grew on them. <laughs> I hope so, too. Because <laughs> <laughs> it really is done well. Yeah, well, there's, there's no choice, right? No, there wasn't. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, wow. yeah. And there, you couldn't keep, there weren't, weren't enough tracks, so you couldn't keep anything else. Yeah. Wow. Well, this has been great. Lenise, thank you so much. My pleasure. 
I can't wait till the next time. Yeah, me too. More, more fun to be had, more stories to be told. I'm there. Sign me up. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Bye, y'all. Cool, cool. If you want to hear more from Al Schmidt, we've actually interviewed him in the oral history program. So you can jump on our website and check out the content from him as well. And just in case you missed that link, it's www.nam.org slash library. That's N-A-M-M dot org. And if you have a chance, please rate and review our podcast. We're working really hard to get this out to more people. And always feel free to leave us some feedback. I want to send out a special thank you to Lanice Bent for all that she does to inspire us and um, all that she does for music. I also want to send a special shout out to our own Michael Mullins for the editing of this podcast.